This is Larry Bertrand. Welcome again to another session of Explore the Bible series. We're still in the book of 1 Thessalonians. This is the sixth lesson in Thessalonians scheduled for April 10th, 2022. Talking about the promised return of Christ gives believers hope when they're grieving. So our passages for today are 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 through 18. And the key verse, memory verse, is actually two verses this week. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangels, and with the trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and we will be with the Lord forever. That's a great, great promise for us. So in... 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 to 18. We're going to see an order of events that Paul mentions regarding the end of time and the second coming. We're going to consider how the order of events serves as a source of encouragement. We'll focus on the importance of seeing the passing of loved ones as a command, uh, as a comma, excuse me, not the end because the because of the hope we have in the promised return of Christ. As we move, pray that the Easter message that will be coming uh, next week will be a real and vivid to everyone and will be an encouragement for us as well, and it will be a great testimony of Christ's resurrection for those first-time visitors at church. So think about what are what are different symbols of punctuation that come to mind as we start this lesson. There's the exclamation point. I like to use that one quite a bit. Exclamation point is just kind of makes an emphasis to something I'm saying, especially if I'm sending a quick text. Uh, you know, I'm praying for you, exclamation point. Some people like to use a little praying hands emoji or something like that, but I like to use exclamation point. Of course, you have uh, colons and semicolons and periods and commas, um, each form of punctuation really has a purpose and a meaning. And if you're reading out loud a sentence that has all these punctuations, there's even a way to express that punctuation when you do that. So there's a significant difference that exists between a period and a comma. A period, a period represents the ending of subject matter or a particular event, it has some finality about it. A comma represents 
a temporary or slight pause and then a continuation of the subject or event. Paul was concerned about how the Thessalonian believers understood uh, the death of loved ones. And so we need to see their passing, Paul says, as a comma and not a period or the end. We, we are able to do this because of the hope we have in the promised return of Christ. So looking at that whole, the whole background of this passage, Paul was filled with hope when he thought about the Thessalonians. He, he found hope uh, in their stand for the gospel amidst persecution. He found hope also in their love and affection for him. He found hope in their witness. They were witnesses not just in Thessalonica, but in Macedonia, Achaia, and other parts of the Roman Empire. So while he had nurtured them like a loving parent, Paul understood the power of the tempter. He knew that damage Satan could do uh, inside a congregation, not if that congregation was not grounded in their faith. Thankfully, uh, when Timothy returned from a visit to Thessalonica, uh, the news was positive. The Thessalonians uh, were, were thriving and uh, they, they were expressing how they had missed Paul and he missed them and they were hoping to see each other again. And with the questions of their faithfulness settled, Paul could turn... Uh, to an expression of hope and offer hope uh, to his readers. First, he reminded them of his prayer on their behalf. They, he prayed that they would grow in, in love, that they would main, remain faithful, that they would be blameless. We looked at some of that last in last week's lesson. He also challenged them to release, uh, to please God, through personal sanctification and sexual purity. Uh, God called his people to live by different standards, a standard of holiness. And so therefore, as we visited last week, they were moving towards uh, a process of sanctification. Paul also encouraged them to love well and to live in a way that drew people to Christ uh, that would not give them a reason to reject Jesus. While Paul gave the Thessalonians advice about day-to-day living, he knew the true hope of Christianity has nothing to do with this life. He urged them that Jesus was coming back someday. Without this truth, Christians had no hope beyond this world. When death came to their friends and family members, they would have no reason to expect comfort in the midst of their grief, but they could take comfort in knowing that Jesus was coming back. One day, they would meet him, as the scripture says, meet him in the air. In the meantime, their daily lives needed to reflect that kind of confidence. So today's session provides hope 
for grieving believers by focusing on the promised return of Christ. Note that Paul began to conclude his first letter to the church at Thessalonica. He focused on the the pending return of Christ. Let me point out that Paul was likely combating the false teachers that those who died would not be resurrected and he or would have, would have to wait until after their, uh, those living were resurrected. And so he was dealing with some of the teaching of false prophets. Paul knew that without the truth of the future resurrection of all believers, followers of Jesus had no hope beyond this world. Paul did not tolerate false teaching or allow it to go unchecked. He was faithful to stand on the truth of God's word and in so doing, set an example for all who would follow after him. So let's look at the first section of scripture. First Thessalonians chapter four, the first two verses, verse 13 and 14, which deal with the subject of hope. Listen for the words of hope for believers who die, as well as those who remain and are grieving. So let me read verse 13 and 14. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed. Some translations use the word ignorant. We do not want you to be uninformed about those who fall asleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of men, of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Paul was combating, again, as I mentioned a little earlier, the false teaching. One was that those who had recently passed away would miss out on the resurrection. That was clearly a false teaching. And a false teaching that believers would not be reunited with their loved ones. That, you know, once they died, that was permanent, but you wouldn't see those who had gone on before you. This was not true, and the missionaries were actively fighting against these lies with the truth. So looking at a commentary, the Bible Knowledge Commentary, um, verse 13, it says, Paul introduced these instructions in such a way as to lay no guilt on Thessalonians for their lack of knowledge. After all, they, they were new believers. He again called them that term of endearment, brothers and sisters, emphasizing their equality of standing before God despite their knowledge deficiency. Clearly, Paul, who had studied theology and had been a Christian longer, had a greater knowledge of uh, these things. Those who fall asleep, that phrase, uh, he's, Paul says, those who fall asleep are Christians who die. Uh, the figure of 
sleep after death is common in the New Testament. Uh, This is not sleep of the soul, however, because Paul wrote elsewhere that a Christian who is absent from the body is present with the Lord. It is rather the sleep of the body in the earth until it is resurrected. So the body is buried or placed in the earth. It's the sleep of the body in the earth until it's resurrected, until it's changed into a glorious body, until it's reunited with the soul in the second coming. Paul wanted the Thessalonians to be neither ignorant nor grieving like the rest of men. That is, like unbelievers over the death of fellow believers. Christians do not grieve over the loss of of loved ones. Christians do not grieve over the loss of loved ones. This is, Christians do, I'm sorry. Christians do grieve over the loss of loved ones. This is a normal human experience, which uh, even Jesus shared. Remember at the death of Lazarus, John, uh, 1135, it says the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. He was moved with emotion and compassion. But the grief of Christians differs from that of unbelievers. For the latter, unbelievers have no hope of bodily resurrection to glory with Christ. So in verse 14, he gives two reasons why Christians should not grieve like unbelievers. And one of them is that Christians have a revelation from God that gives them hope. And the second is they have a glorious future with Christ. Just as certainly as Jesus died and was resurrected by the Father, so God will unite the resurrected dead in Christ with their Savior at his coming. So the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ are among the the best attest facts of history. Since Christians know these events took place, one passage says that more than 500 witnessed uh, his resurrected Uh, witnessed and were with him after the resurrection. Uh, They can be equally certain, Paul said, that the souls of believers who have died will return with Christ when he comes for his living saints. So the prophecy of the rapture is is as sure to be fulfilled as the prophecies of Christ's death and resurrection. That was a, a great, well, there are a lot of good books. But uh, I came across a book back in the early 80s written by Josh McDowell entitled Evidence Demands of, That Demands a Verdict. And he was going to prove that the resurrection of Jesus was a hoax. He was not a believer when he first started this book. And he wrote it like a research paper, finding every bit of evidence. And the evidence he was going to use was evidence not found in religious uh, literature. So nothing that the Bible said, he was going to strictly work with the evidence of history, uh, historians 
of that time. And he was going to prove that the resurrection was a hoax. And the thing that he came to conclude was the verdict is Jesus Christ is truly the Son of God. He died. He, he certainly rose again. And there's plenty of evidence, evidence not even found in the Bible that substantiated that it really happened. So Paul wanted the Thessalonians to know that the message was, know that the message was about, he was about to deliver was from God. So we look at chapter four, verses 15 and 16. Here we can identify the events of Christ's return and he lists them in in order as, as Paul felt they needed to be, or as Paul was uh, felt the revelation of God. So in verse 15, according to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who were still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, we will certainly not precede those who've fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangels and with the trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ will be raised first. So you see an order that's given here. The dead in Christ will be raised first and then those who still remain will be uh, resurrected or taken to heaven. So let me emphasize the reality and certainty of the return of Jesus and the resurrection of deceased believers. Again, in the Bible Knowledge Commentary, verse 15, it says, the revelation of this resurrection came from Jesus Christ himself. How it came to Paul, it's not known, but perhaps it was a direct revelation that Christ gave Paul. Not only will the souls of the dead in Christ return with him, but their bodies will also be resurrected at his coming. The bodies of dead Christians will be resurrected immediately before the living Christians are conveyed upward. So clearly Paul believed that he and his Thessalonian uh, readers might well be alive when the Lord returned. He believed that the, the rapture was imminent, that it could take place at any moment, even on that very day that he's writing all this. And he mentions that the time is short. We see that in Philippians 4, 5. And the Lord is near. And the truth of the imminency uh, brought comfort. To know that this is going to happen brings comfort. Uh, we see that in chapter 4, verse 18. So in verse 16, says, Jesus Christ now sits at the right hand of God in heaven. Uh, references to that are in Romans 8, 34, Ephesians 1, 20, and so forth. He will leave this position and ascend to the earth by the words of the Lord himself. Paul emphasized that it would be the same Jesus who had ascended. So the same Jesus who went up is coming back down. 
the same Jesus who, just, who ascended through the clouds is going to return. The sound mentioned in these verses are sounds. It refers to a, a loud command with the voice of the archangels, with the trumpet call of God. Uh, it's hard to interpret what all this means. Who will, uh, who will voice the loud shout? Uh, will it be Jesus himself or, or the archangel Michael or another angel? It is a literal, is it a literal trumpet call or was Paul speaking figuratively and describing the call of God which he will announce uh, when he will announce the advent of his son? These three phenomena may all refer to the same thing, but probably they are three separate, almost simultaneous announcements. Can you imagine what that is going to be like when that happens? These loud, simultaneous announcements that the Lord is returning, heralding the Christ's return. Bowen's curiosity about these uh, aspects of the rapture is not fully satisfied in this passage. One thing is clear. Christ's return for his saints will be announced from the heaven forcefully and dramatically. <laughs> no church service can ever duplicate or replicate what this is going to be like. And so it says, then the dead in Christ will be resurrected. That is, believers of this dispensation will be raised. So the, those who were placed in the ground will be resurrected. The bodies of the dead in Christ will will rise before the living Christians are caught up to meet the Lord in the air. So the dead in Christ who are in the ground will rise first, and then the living Christians will meet the Lord in the air. So how will God raise the bodies of people who were buried hundreds of years ago? What about the bodies of those Christians? I know you think about this sometimes, who were burned uh, to death or whose ashes have been thrown into the wind or, you know, and Christians who perished at sea, the resurrection of the dead poses a, a great problem to the faith of many. Perhaps that's why Paul stressed that this revelation came from Jesus Christ himself and that it is a certain, is as certain of the future fulfillment of Jesus' resurrection uh, as in fact, the past history. So the, the God who created the universe out of nothing with a word is fully able, and I believe this completely, he is fully able to reassemble the decayed bodies of all his saints in a moment of time. God might be going, oh no, where, where's Larry? Where's John? Where's, you know, no. The God who is omniscient, who knows all things, who is omnipotent, able to do whatever he desires, will not be challenged in that day. 
So Paul concluded uh, with a command to encourage one another. So let's look at the last two verses, verse 17 and 18. And as I read these, be aware of the emotions uh, they experience while listening to Paul's words. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, Paul says, encourage one another with these words. So in verse 18, Paul called on the church to encourage one another with the words. The command was written with the expectation that the Thessalonian believers would live this out immediately. Looking at Tyndale's commentary on these two verses, he says that after that, believers who remain alive or on earth, we who are still alive will be caught up with them. So, so the, the dead in Christ will rise first and we will be caught up with them in the clouds. The, the verb uh, combines the ideas of, of force and suddenness uh, seen in the irresistible power of God. It's, it's going to be such a dramatic, instantaneous moment. Uh, even though the dead will be rise first, I don't think it, it's going to be hardly noticeable. We should not overlook the fact that believers will be caught up with them. There will be a reunion with Christ, but there will also be a reunion with the friends who have gone before. Clouds are frequently associated with divine appearances and activity. They will meet the Lord in the air. That is an expression that's translated to meet. It's the kind of technical term for the official welcome of a newly arrived uh, dignitary and suitable in this context. It is a measure of the Lord's complete supremacy that he should meet his saints in such a region in the air uh, as would be the abode of all, all manner of evil spirits. And so at the same time, this is not anything more than a meeting place. We'll meet him in the clouds, meet him in the air. Uh, it's, it seems that the Lord proceeded to the earth with his people. So the, the climax comes, the climax comes with, we will be with the Lord forever. That's really the climactic statement in this passage. There are many points on which we should like further information. But when Paul comes to that great fact that makes everything else unimportant, he stops. There's no need uh, to add uh, to, to the fact. And so in verse 18, Paul calls on his readers 
not simply to take heart, but to act, but actively to encourage each other with what has been written. Uh, one theologian, Whitley, sees this very as a very important statement. Paul's words, he says, are a source of continual strengthening for the believer, not simply a spur to fascination with the future. So these statements convey the assurance that the power of God will never be defeated. God is supreme, and when he sees that the time has come, he will draw this age to its close and usher in the new age with the second coming, the parousia. So whatever, whether we live or whether we die, Paul says, we do not go beyond his power. Even in the face of death, we can remain calm and triumphant. For we know that those who fall asleep in Jesus and that they have their place in the final scheme of things. Well might Paul call on his friends to encourage each other with these words. And so the doctrine of the last things refers back to Luke chapter 21, verse 27 and 28. At that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When these things begin to take place, stand up, lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. And then in Jude 14, it says, Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about them, see the Lord is coming with, with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones. So some applications to this lesson are wonderful for us as we approach Easter next week. The return of Jesus gives believers hope when grieving the death of another believer. Jesus will return in his full glory, gathering all believers through the ages of eternity. And finally, we see the certainty of Christ's return should encourage believers uh, who grieve. As we consider our closing time, thank, thank God for the hope of Christ's promised return. It's a wonderful gift that he gives us. A song that was I, clearly my favorite song as a young boy growing up in South Louisiana is this the beautiful little hymn, When the Roll is Called Up Yonder. And the words to the first verse are, When the trumpet of the Lord shall sound, and time shall be no more, and the morning breaks eternal bright and fair, when the saved of earth shall gather over on the other shore, and the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there. And then the refrain, when the roll is called up yonder, 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 I'll be there. A great statement of 
hope for all of us who are believers in Christ. Pray with me. Lord, thank you for the promise that when that roll call of faith is called, we'll be there. Not because of our good works, not because of the life we live, but simply because as best we knew how, whether like for myself, when I was eight years old, I put my faith in Jesus Christ. It's because of my faith in Christ and my trust in Him that I have the promise of everlasting life forever with Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.